Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. Uh, this is the inaugural episode, the very first episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem podcast. Uh, I've been threatening to do this for an awful long time, and I've finally gotten my act together. We'll see how this goes. Uh, this first show is really amazing. But first, what is this all about? What is the Cloud-Based Mayhem podcast? Uh, it basically was born out of uh, a hope to kind of disperse knowledge about all things free flight. So acro, uh, cross-country, whatever you fly, I think this will be very valuable to you. Uh the reason this kind of sparked uh, my interest in doing in doing it to begin with was uh, my my first World Cup that I ever flew in was here in my hometown of Sun Valley uh, in 2012. And after the comp, uh, it was the first time I'd ever flown a comp wing. It was the first time I'd ever really raced uh, with uh, with guys and and gals who were were incredibly uh, talented pilots. And after the race, we had an open distance competition here and had really bad weather, couldn't fly much at all. And uh, instead of just wasting the time and going biking every day, a lot of the real legends in our sport got up and gave some really amazing talks about how to eat and how to hydrate and how to think big and, and basically how to fly big distances. And, you know, we heard from Matt Beechner and Nate Scales and Nick Grease and Russ Ogden and Bill Belcourt. And it was just incredible. You know, we have resources like Cross Country Magazine and Hang Gliding and Paragliding and uh, other resources, but I, it was just so much information condensed into a really small time frame. And I think everybody that was there that was lucky enough to be there was just blown away. And I thought, God, wouldn't this be amazing to uh, disperse this to the wider flying audience, whether you're expert or novice like I was. I just found that I got so much out of it. Uh, one of the podcasts I listen to all the time is the Tim Ferriss podcast, and he kind of tries to dissect excellence and provide it to layman and uh, that's what this podcast is all about i'm going to try to interview uh the really really exceptional pilots whether they be hang gliders paragliders what have you uh in our little fringe sport and try to disperse that knowledge uh the first guest i have with us is uh bill belcourt it actually wasn't a guest for the podcast but he's given me the okay to put this out live when we were filming 500 miles to nowhere we stopped by black diamond uh he's the director of, of research and development there at black diamond and, and and uh, if you've seen the film, you know that there's a couple lines in that film that are just phenomenal. Of course, they came from Bill, our little Yoda of the sport. And uh, But what many of you probably don't know is that we sat down with him for over an hour and a half. And I asked him all kinds of things about throwing a reserve and what the concept of bringing it means and how do we how do you fly big aesthetic lines and risk and reward and safety and gear and equipment and where paragliding came from and where it's going and two liners and I, the list just goes on and on and on it was just this insane uh course in 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 free flight that uh we luckily recorded it we had the red cameras going i have to apologize for some of the sound uh, there's a lot of kind of a fan sound coming off one of the cameras but um I've, I've kind of put this together and edited a bit and i hope you enjoy so without further ado here is bell belcourt the legend i'm bill belcourt and i've been flying paraglidders since 1989 and why paragliding i know you've got a background in rock climbing and alpine climbing, but why paragliding? What attracted you to that sport? 
it seemed like a great descent tool for alpine climbing instead of uh, carrying a bunch of ropes and equipment to get down off of something you could just carry a, a small paraglider and fly off the top that at least was the mentality in the late 80s and as a paraglider myself uh, we all kind of see you as kind of the legend is the one that really paved the way in cross-country paragliding how did you make the transition from using it as a descent tool to using it as a traveling tool it became obvious almost instantly that the paraglider had way more potential in it than just a descent tool and i wasn't the first one to realize that people i were i was flying with uh, also uh, had put that together sooner my my mentors like john bouchard being one of them uh, todd bibler being another one they had realized the potential of paragliders to fly distance and the glider design at the time was evolving towards that and uh, and away from from being used as a descent tool and if i think back uh, john mittendorf who was a was one of the badass big wall climbers and one of the early users of paragliders as a descent tool he noticed that the speed increase of the new paraglider designs made them that much more difficult to launch in precarious places and use as a descent tool. So, so it was moving away from that to a flying uh, machine that was just more capable of, of flying, not just getting down off when things. You think of our, our aircraft in, in, the, uh, in the year 2014. Well, what I think of a paraglider now uh, is I'm constantly amazed by the technology's ability to continue to evolve, and that's a credit to the companies making paragliders. I remember thinking in the 90s, oh, these things are as good as they're going to get, and, and even as much as five or six years ago, that they're as good as they're going to get and now we're just going to see incremental gain and then there's another breakthrough like the two-liner and and they just get better so i've been proven wrong enough to know that they'll just continue to get better and the amazing thing about it is it's still basically uh, dacron or nylon fabric and string and uh, and they just can fold up and fit into a pack and still do incredible things, more incredible things than ever before. Bill, just in the last couple of seasons, it seems like a handful of pilots here in the West have been flying these really big lines. You know, you and Dadam flew to Moab this year. Uh, all these records went down last year and, and, and this year. Um, what do you attribute that to? What's going on? Is it just wing design? Days that you can go far is just a realization of, of, of years of planning and waiting. And 
you have some ideas in mind as to what you want to do with a particular day based on the conditions of that day, whether it be lift, whether it be wind speed, uh, direction, and if you can work out your schedule to have that day to go flying. And if you have a plan in mind that you've been thinking about for a long time, then you're just much more likely to be able to execute on the plan instead of just uh, randomly coming up with something while you're in the air. And trying to think big and trying to uh, see the day coming, have a, a plan in place for the day, which is always subject to change, but it means you're just more likely to pull it off. And there's been plenty of days in the past where I haven't thought big enough. I've only thought about a flight up to a certain point, only to arrive at that point uh, with a little bit of day left with no idea what to do next. And now I just try to look out as far as possible on those, on those potential flights, knowing that they can go better than expected, they can go worse than expected, and you should be mentally prepared for both, and that is just have a plan. And are you able to identify those days in advance, or is this something that you're seeing in the air and and how do you have a plan for the difference or how do you adjust to that difference? You can identify only so much in advance and you have a plan and a couple of contingencies and then based on the day that you get you can uh, can adjust and if you've thought about uh, a big flight in a variety of different ways, then, then you always have a contingency. You always have an idea of what else you can do uh, with a day besides what you thought might, might be what you were doing, if that makes any sense. And you just have to, you have to have looked at a lot of maps and you have to have given it a lot of thought, talked it over with your flying buddies at times, uh, and, uh, then when the, when the conditions present themselves, even when they're in the air, the solutions are obvious. Last year at the World Cup, you talked about the concept of bringing it. Can you speak for a moment about risk? What, you know, what that meant to me was that if you're, if you're thinking about flying big, you can't be thinking about landing and uh, being tired or being dehydrated, you know, bringing it meant uh, willing to put yourself in in compromised places and having the skills and having the mental acuity to to deal with it. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, what I meant on um, you know bringing it, which is basically bringing a uh, a mental attitude, a mental focus, a, a degree of commitment to the flight uh, and, and staying on the offensive. And it's another way of putting it is you can fly you know, offensively or you can fly defensively. And a defensive position in flying is, um, 
ha has to happen at times, but uh, but if you can keep mentally on the offensive, you can you can be pushing it. You could be going for what's next, and knowing that you'll have to ultimately switch at times between flying offensive and flying defensively based on the conditions that present themselves. But you always have to be uh, thinking about the goal, which is to fly a significant flight and to do it within a reasonable degree of, of, of safety. But um, these are not safe sports. and. Um, there's no guarantee of a of a safe outcome, so so you have to use your skills and what you know to um, to protect yourself, but at the same time to to be pushing it, and it's it's a fine line at times, and you learn where that line is uh, via experience, and. If you're not out there, if you're not out there training all the time, which is trying to fly these flights, then you're not going to have the experience, and you're not going to have a good sense of the line. So, so you have to uh, you have to go a lot. You have to test your theories. Uh, you have to have that attitude of of bringing it when you're going for it, and you have to know when to when to switch from offense to defense. Last summer, we had in kind of short, short succession uh, a series of just remarkable flights. Started off with Matt Beechner's flight of 193 miles uh, from Sun Valley, and then shortly after that, Nate Scales went 199 miles, and then shortly after that, Nick Grease went 204 miles from Jackson. What's going on? Uh, what's Again, what's, what's changed here? Well, I think the reason those big flights were happening was there's a few reasons. Uh, one being we're a fairly tight group of friends. Um, we talk all the time about uh, trying to do something big. I was talking to a farmer uh, about 200 miles with a two-liner, you know, two for two is what I was calling it. and and how that was an exciting thing f for me to try to, to try to get to as a goal. And if we could all try to get there, it'd be, be hilarious if a bunch of us were focusing on the same thing. So that was happening. We were talking about it. And then uh, the competition scene had dramatically changed with um, the banning of open class gliders in, in most every competition in the world. And the fact that that, to me, was a signal that there was, there was a bit of an end to the amount of freedom that we had when we were flying competitions. And in order to experience something similar, we were just going to have to switch gears, no longer focus as much on race to goal competitions and start to focus on uh, big mountain free flying, and and I saw evidence of that in other sports. For instance, uh, for years in skiing, uh, in the type of skiing that we're into, which is backcountry, 
it's gone away from uh, it's gone it's gone away from safer lines in the trees. Uh, it's gone away for years now from ski racing, which when I started skiing, it seemed like that was everybody's focus. And now you you see uh, more people just riding big lines in the mountains, and I I took a little from that in my shift in focus from flying competitions to just trying to fly big lines in the mountains, because as an alpinist, you're you're looking for cool lines to climb. They don't have to be the biggest or the longest. And you're just looking for an aesthetic aspect, uh, a commitment, a something that's just inspiring to you personally. And, and you try to find something that reflects those qualities when you're out looking for something new to climb. And with flying, I see it much the same way. It's not the longest line. It's not the, <clears throat> it's not the records, really. It's trying to find an aesthetic line to fly that is personally inspiring. So you just focus on that. Do you think these big lines, is there a maximum? Is it just going to keep going? Is there a maximum? Um, it depends on what the definition of maximum is. If the only metric you're using is kilometers, um, then yeah, sure, there's, there's probably a maximum. But if, if the metric that you're using to judge the quality of a flight uh, is something other than just ultimate kilometers, then there is none. You know, there's, there's cooler lines to fly, there's just deeper lines, more spectacular positions to be in. And that, in my mind, is, is the number one quality I'm looking for. I'm not necessarily looking for just measuring it, the quality of a flight by the distance of the flight. Have we touched the surface? You know, I know in the Alps, uh, most, if not all, the lines have been done, but have we touched the surface here in the, in the Intermountain West? We're scratching the surface uh, as far as big lines go in the States. Uh, I use a climbing analogy to describe this. Uh, when people ask me about paragliding and what I'm doing with a paraglider, and I say, I feel like George Lowe in the Canadian Rockies in the 70s. And that is, if you look at the significant ascents done in the Rockies in the 70s, George Lowe is usually uh, the man to have done them with various partners. And it's a really great place to be if you realize that you're there. And I think we're here. And that's why uh, we're having such good success because a lot of this hasn't been done before, and to be there to do it and to figure it out is a very special time. Have you ever been hurt paragliding? Have ever been hurt paragliding? I tell people I only broke my neck once. So yes, I have been hurt paragliding, and I did break my neck crashing a paraglider in a competition. And did you throw your reserve? No, it's too low to throw the reserve. I just had one reflexive shot at recovering the glider and uh, 
did so for the most part, but didn't have the, the glide away from the hill as the glider was recovering and ended up you know, tumbling across the terrain. And at the time I had one of those fairinged, mildly fairinged helmets, like a time trial helmet. And uh, it was what all the cool guys were wearing. So, so we had them as well. And as I tumbled across the ground, which I didn't impact uh, very hard, the, the helmet managed to catch the ground uh, in the crash and twist my head around and break my neck. But other than that, I didn't have a scratch on me. Have you ever thrown your reserve? I've thrown my reserve once and it didn't help. Didn't help? No. What happened? You really want this story? <laughs> Off the record. <laughs> okay, you can have it on the record. So it was a PWC in the mid 90s uh, near the what was it called? Uh, it was the one near the town of Lecco in Italy, uh, Lake Como. Uh, there's a PWC that happens there quite often. And it was, I don't know, maybe the second or the third task. And there were some signs of vertical development earlier in the day, but then it just grayed over. So anything we saw had become embedded and while we were seeing the vertical in other valleys, when it grayed over, we didn't notice the vertical in the valley that we were in. And I was flying with Dave Bridges, who's a, an old buddy and a two-time national champion who was you know, killed with Alex Lowe on Shishapangma in 99. And Dave and I were uh, maybe 5K from goal with three quarters of the field over the town of Lecco when the cumulonimbus above us embedded in the gray dropped out. So we had one quick turn point to hit before we could glide over the goal line. And suddenly I was going down at about, I don't know, 24, 2,500 feet a minute. And I was thinking, man, this is some big sink. So I pointed the glider towards the last sun patch, figuring I'd just fly over there and, uh, and wait this one out. And all I could do was point the glider in a different direction, but because of the sink, I couldn't glide anywhere. And, sh and then you know, I could feel the air get cold, and I knew that it was a cell and it, it was dropping. It was the very first stage of it dropping and it was going to be trouble. So uh, the dropping air turned to wind, and I, at that point, creeped out to the first soccer field I saw another glider just landing in. And before I could get into that soccer field, the wind started to pick up and, um, and blow me past it. So then the glider, I was flying a Firebird Colt at the time, which was one of the hotter gliders ever made, and was very susceptible to ver some dramatic frontals. So the glider would just disappear. So the glider disappears, uh, but at this point I was kind of used to that with this glider, and I just get it back. And, and then I 
arrived at the next field I could land in. And then I got blown past that one, glider would disappear, I'd get it back. And now I was coming up on the town of Lecco. And I said to myself, if the glider blows up one more time, I'm just gonna toss it. So at this point, I'm maybe a few hundred feet, the glider blows up one more time. I just instantly toss the reserve uh, as the glider uh, recovers in a steep spiral within asymmetric. And the reserve, is sh the reserve weather vanes behind me but doesn't come out of the envelope. So it's, it's not, it's, and I can't reach the bridle because it's just right behind me as I'm, as I'm in the spiral from the glider. So I just go back to the glider and I recover the glider uh, into the wind at rooftop level. And at this point, it's, it's raining, lightning, hail, and, and for a moment, everything stops. And I just see this rooftop to my right, glider comes into the wind, everything stops, and then the reserve opens. So the reserve just opens like a gunshot and starts dragging me at a high rate of speed through the neighborhood. Um, and I'm still off the ground. So, so in a moment later, um, I, get, I get pasted against this chain link fence, which was good. It was like, because it, it had a lot of flex to it. So I just hit the fence, it flexes, and I grab onto it. And the reserve is on the other side of the fence. Uh, and it's just pulsing with the wind. And the wind is blowing um, at like 40 miles an hour. So this reserve's pulsing with the wind and I've got my hands through the chain link like this and I've wormed my toes underneath the bottom of the fence and so I'm and I was climbing a lot at the time and I was really strong I could do one arm pull up with either hand and so I'm thinking nothing's getting me off this fence you know I don't care how hard it blows and so the winds just pulsing and the posts for the fence are in asphalt and then I'm looking, I'm looking at the post because the fence is flexing a lot and the s concrete cylinders are starting to crack the asphalt and come out of the ground on either side of me. So it's just splintering and I'm seeing the cylinders just kind of start rising um, on the two posts. And I'm going, no, no. And, it, and the, so I'm thinking, okay, now I got to get out of my harness somehow. And so it had three quick release buckles and I just needed to be able to let go with one hand to be able to undo them, but it was really hard. So I, so I eventually got centered over, over, over one hand and, uh, and then managed to unclip the buckles uh, and then just raise my arms really quickly until the harness just got sucked off me and, uh, and the reserve blew a couple yards away couple houses away and, and just got caught in some tree. So I was, I was out. I was standing in the hail and the lightning and the rain um, on, in somebody's driveway, you know, and there I was. So I gathered up my stuff and while I was doing so, um, old Italian ladies were coming out of the houses going, oh Madonna, oh Madonna, whatever that means, oh my God, I guess. So. Uh, so one of them brought me like a double whiskey 
and uh, and I just drained it. You know, I could really have used another one, but my Italian wasn't that good. Uh, and and then she opened a garage for me to stand in, while uh, uh, while the until the rain stopped. So I'm standing in this open garage. I've gathered up all my kits, stuffed it in the bag, and the cops show up. So it's some Italian cop with a, a VW GTI, and he just motions me to throw my stuff in the car. And, and I, I do, and I get in the front seat, and he doesn't say a word, and he just drives down the wrong side of the street, runs people off the road with his lights on, and he drives to meet headquarters. And he doesn't say a word to me, he just pulls up on the curb in front of meet headquarters, and just gets out of the car and just walks in. So I just kind of gather my stuff and I'm walking in like 50 feet behind him. And he finds the meat organizer and he just starts laying into him in Italian. Um, and there's a lot of hand waving going on and a lot of yelling and then the cop just leaves. And there I am and I just check in and, uh, and that was it. But the reserve didn't help me that day and um, I haven't thrown it since. So that's my one reserve. Bill, can you compare the flying here uh, in the American West to other places in the world? I know you've flown comps all over the world and you've flown in Europe a lot. Uh, what's the, what are the major differences between the flights that we do here uh, versus other places that you've flown? Flying in the U.S. versus Europe, the U.S. it's burlier. There's more winds. I think the thermals are, uh, are rougher. Being on the speed bar for any length of time requires a lot more glider management. I've just been amazed at times in Europe where I could be well into the speed bar in a really calm piece of air and just being shocked by how calm it was between thermals. And obviously there's, there's no place very remote in Europe. You're gonna find roads and cell service virtually everywhere. And in the States, uh, as, as indicated by Guy Anderson's Sun Valley experience, there's a lot of places that you can be where there's no cell coverage and there's going to be, uh, uh, you're going to be difficult to find if something should go wrong and you're out of communication. So, so when you're flying in the West, you're largely on your own, and um, and there's there's also uh, there's mountain lions, there's bears, there's rattlesnakes. Uh, there's usually more wind, so so there's a there's a lot that can uh, can present additional challenges when you fly in the West versus Europe. Do those changes that you just talked about, does that impact your kit? Tell me a little bit about what you carry when you do, say, big flights on the Uintas or in the Wasatch or other places that you've flown in the American West. Do you, uh, do you carry uh, different things in your, in your harness than you do in other parts of the world here? Perfectly honest, not really. Besides bringing some food, Certainly, if you're flying at altitude, you have plenty of clothes with you. Um, you've got your glider. I'm not, I'm not bringing much. 
in addition to, uh, I'm not bringing camping gear, if you will, because as, a, as an alpinist, the amount of stuff that we have with us just to go flying is more than an alpinist would have. Uh, and where you could potentially be sleeping is gonna be less harsh anyway. It's not like you're high on some north-facing ice climb on some tiny ledge shaking, shaking all night because um, that's really what uh, the high end of alpinism can involve. Uh, if you're landing out in the middle of nowhere, you're, you're not as high, you've got this big paraglider you can sleep in, and uh, if you've got a GPS, you can find some trail systems or whatnot and, and just walk out. It's just like, it's like a long approach uh, for going climbing, just in reverse. So it's, I don't really think you need to have uh, a lot of stuff with you besides the basics, food, water, and your gliders or shelter. What about oxygen? Um, we're really the kind of only group of pilots in the world that have tanks in our houses and stuff. Well, what do you think about oxygen? It's a necessity out here. You're getting to the legal limit, which is about 5,500 meters and or 18,000 feet, and your cognitive abilities are much less uh, less sharp if you're not flying with O2, and even if you're flying with O2, you're still you're still a bit compromised because the systems aren't 100% efficient and the tanks don't last the entire day, especially if it's a day where you're staying high for, for a good chunk of time. You're using up that O2. And in order to make good decisions, in order to stay warm, and to have some visual acuity to, to pick out uh, either climbing birds or good places to land or, or power lines or whatnot, you need that O2 to, to stay sharp enough to stack the deck in your favor as far as making good decisions and staying out of trouble. You've inspired a huge number of people over the years. Um, who inspired you? Well, who inspires me? Um, and I've said this before, and that's anyone pushing hard for nothing. And that's what paragliding to me is, is been about, and that is here's an obscure sport, just like climbing used to be an obscure sport, uh, and you're trying to realize your own potential uh, in, in a place where no one sees and no one cares. And there's a purity in that, and there's a, there's a lack of distraction that goes with it, and it's it's just you and the elements, and um, and that's it, you know. So it's a real personal experience. So, so, in alpinists before me, like some of the names I've mentioned earlier, whether it be Bouchard, George Lowe, or Todd Bibler. Uh, George never got into flying paragliders, but Bouchard and, and Bibbler did. And, and they came from, from alpinism, and that was 
uh, a sport which uh, the basic premise was doing the most with the least. And I see a paraglider as the ultimate flying machine because it is really the least. So you're doing the most with the least with a paraglider and um, you're doing it in you're doing it in a very similar way to, to alpinism. And it's, and you're far from the public eye when you're doing it. And there's no, uh, there's no corruption from that. And you're just doing your craft for you. And when you have some friends you can do it with, it makes it all that much more special, but, uh, but anything I've done relative to inspiring anybody else is all I'm doing is passing the baton as it was passed to me. And, and it's the obligation uh, to pass the baton next to whoever gets it. And that's, uh, you know, that's how it goes. Well, that is it for the inaugural Cloud-Based Mayhem podcast. I hope you enjoyed all that. I certainly did. And uh, next up, well, I don't know who I'm going to be interviewing next. We've got quite a few candidates, a couple things in the hole. Uh, maybe we'll talk to Nick Grease, who is our U.S. champion and just returned from the Worlds down in Columbia recently. Uh, but anyway, stay tuned and hope you enjoyed it. And this is over and out from Gavin McClurg. Cheers.